Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 34. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. This is number 34. This one, we are going to talk once again to Ollie Paul who is the respiratory therapist over in Canada. You may have listened to some of his podcasts before in some of the previous episodes. They're quite popular. So obviously his way of explaining things is something that you like. I personally like it as well, and I discovered him on YouTube, as you probably know. I'm going to put the links to the show notes to Ollie, um, his Twitter handle, and to his YouTube page, which I strongly recommend you go and visit. Very, very useful. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk to Ollie. As we as we alluded to in a couple of podcasts ago, probably the most confusing thing about mechanical ventilation, bar none, is the lack of standardization in terminology. Like it is by far the most the thing which causes the most confusion among people is you'll hear two people say one person will say CMV and then the other person will say IMV and the other person will say PSIMV and and they could all be talking about the same thing. So that really is the biggest, I think, barrier in terms of learning mechanical ventilation is is the terminology. In my opinion, the best way to to get around that is to learn about different breath types. And there's three which I talk about in the assist control video and if by learning the types of breath that the, the ventilator delivers, when you understand those, you can then go to this mode of ventilation that looks confusing and has some five-letter weird acronym that the ventilator companies come up with and say, okay, what types of breath does this mode deliver? And then once you've figured that out, you might be able to say, oh, you know what, this is actually just CMB or this is actually just the mode that I'm already familiar with but it just has different letters so mm-hmm. so I think that's probably the best place to start and this will really sort of allow us to tease our way into other modes not just assist control it'll allow us to get into pr- like pressure support ventilation and SIMV and IMV and all those types of other wonderful things the the three types of breath which we're going to start with and remember that ventilators have become enormously complex and will continue to. So this is these breath types are sort of expanding out, but the core breath types that we need to get really familiar with off the bat, that's controlled breaths. The second type is assisted breaths. And the third type is spontaneous breaths. The way that these differ is all to do with the relationship between the patient and the ventilator in terms of who is doing the work of breathing is the is the ventilator doing the work of breathing is the patient doing the work of breathing or is it a combination of the two and who is initiating the breath who is triggering the breaths now that we've covered trigger variables we can use that term if you take a controlled breath this is like our example where we had our 
sedated, paralyzed patient. The only type of breath you can deliver to a paralyzed, sedated patient is a controlled breath. They cannot breathe spontaneously and they cannot have assisted breaths. And we'll go through why that why that's the case. So a controlled breath is triggered by the ventilator. The patient doesn't have to do anything. It's going to be triggered by time. So we remember how we said we have a respiratory rate of whatever, 10, 12, 14. And based on that, we have a total cycle time, which we talked about in a previous podcast. So we said that at a respiratory rate of 10, we have a total cycle time of six seconds. Every, t- every six seconds that goes by, the ventilator is going to deliver a breath. So in a controlled breath, that is what's going to trigger the breath. That is our trigger variable. Remember how we talked about trigger variables. So that six seconds going by is what triggers the breath to begin. And then another six seconds goes by and another six seconds go by. And each time that triggers the ventilator to go into inspiration. So yeah, yeah. and then the breath takes place and that could that could be a volume control breath. It could be a pressure control breath. That doesn't really have anything to do with the control part of a controlled breath type. It's really about how the ventilator and the patient interact. So, so just just to interrupt you for a second yeah. there, Ollie, you say a controlled breath is the um, is you can only deliver controlled breath. Sorry, a patient who's ventilated, sedated, and paralyzed can only have a controlled breath. They can't have an assisted breath right. or a spontaneous breath because of what you've done to them. But on the other side of the coin, can a patient who isn't ventilated, paralyzed, sorry, who isn't uh, paralyzed and sedated, can they still receive a controlled breath? Yeah, yeah, they can. Uh, and initially, control breaths was breaths were all we had in ventilators. Long long time ago, when ventilators were sort of more primitive than they are now, control was all we had. We knew how to put breath gas in and get gas out in out. And if the ventil- if the patient tried to take a breath on their own, nothing would happen. The the, the circuit wouldn't let them do anything. All the, the only breath they would get is the ones that we told the ventilator to give them. So and then as ventilators become more advanced and the sort of technology grew a bit the emphasis moved towards okay how do we make this more comfortable for the patient because it you can imagine if you're lying there and you want to breathe but you don't get to decide when to breathe you breathe when the ventilator tells you to breathe that would be quite uncomfortable or you can imagine a situation where you're trying to breathe out but the ventilator is trying to breathe in to you and then you get this what we call asynchrony right so the control breath was sort of the original breath and they're great for situations where the patients don't have a respiratory drive because we can do it all for them. So the next thing that came along is said, OK, well maybe we can try and make these slightly more comfortable. Maybe in between those control breaths, what if the patient wants to take an extra breath in old ventilation? They wouldn't be able to in like the original IMVs and those. Are, if the patient wanted to take a breath in between breaths that we've told them they're getting in our 12 breaths a minute, 10 breaths a minute, they wouldn't be able to. In what an assisted breath is, is it is essentially the exact same as a control breath in, every, in all other ways, except that it's triggered by the patient. The patient can initiate that breath by making an inspiratory effort. But then once they've made that inspiratory effort, everything else about the breath is exactly the same as a control breath. Does that make sense? Okay. That's yeah, a really, absolutely. really important concept. So yeah, if we yeah. had, let's use the example of volume control. Let's say we're giving 500 mils per breath. We have 50% oxygen and a flow rate, uh, a, a sort of constant flow rate of 60 liters a minute. Okay, so in our control breath, what would happen? Six, uh, whatever our uh, total cycle time would be. Let's say it's 10 breaths a minute. So six seconds goes by. 
we have our breath and then it's triggered by time, not the patient. And then our flow starts at 60 liters a minute. We deliver 500 mils of tidal volume and then the breath ends. Okay. And then six, uh, then the rest of the time goes by. And once a total of six seconds has happened since the start of the breath, it happens again in an assisted breath. The only difference is instead of time triggering that breath, the patient makes an inspiratory effort using their respiratory muscles. But then the exact same things happens. We still have 50% oxygen. We still have 60 liters a minute of fixed flow. We still deliver 500 mils. The breath is exactly the same. The only difference is that it was triggered by the patient. You can adjust how much inspiratory effort it takes to trigger an assisted breath, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So we've said yeah. that if the patient wants a breath in between, in between our controlled breaths, we, they can trigger it themselves by exercising their respiratory muscles. And it turns out that's called a trigger variable. And those trigger variables, there's two of them, really. There's flow. So the patient can either, whilst making that inspiratory effort, cause a change in flow in the circuit. And we can set how much of a flow change they need to generate in order to trigger the breath. So they can either create a change in flow in the circuit or they can create a change in pressure in the circuit. If you imagine their patient's lungs as, as part of the whole system, if, if they create, if they pull up intercostal muscles and their diaphragm goes down, they increase the volume of their thorax, which is what happens when you make an inspiratory effort that drops the pressure of the system by increasing the volume, right? So then they've caused a little drop in the, in the pressure of the, of the circuit. And we can dial into the ventilator how much of a drop they have to create in order to trigger the breath. So all they would have to do is create that little drop in pressure and then boom, the ventilator takes over and gives them a breath. They really don't have to do much of the work on an assisted breath. It sounds like we're sort of helping them, helping them along a little bit, but really we're not. The ventilator still takes almost the entire work of breathing, but the patient just initiates the breath. We've covered control breath, we've covered assisted breath. A spontaneous breath is really where the patient is allowed to have more control over the flow rate or more control over the tidal volume of the breath. Or, and, and really, it, it's more of a natural, spontaneous breath like you and I would take when we're not on a ventilator. So the way that works is only certain modes of ventilation will allow spontaneous breaths. And the, the way they're triggered is they're obviously triggered by the patient because they're spontaneous breaths. They're, this is designed for when people are awake and breathing on their own. So they're yeah. triggered by the patient. Then what essentially happens is they are cycled by, by flow. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The patient takes a breath in and as they breathe in, they create an inspiratory flow. And what the ventilator does is it measures their inspiratory flow and then it decides that it will end the breath. It cycles the breath into exhalation when that inspiratory flow decays to a certain point. Because obviously, as you inhale, you've initially the gas is coming in quite quickly. As you start your inspiration, it's going to go up very quickly. And then as the lungs start to fill, that the rate at which the gas is going into the lungs is going to slowly start to decay as the lungs fill up. So what the ventilator does is it says, okay, when, when the inspiratory flow decays to a certain point, we could say 25% of peak flow, maybe it's 50% of peak flow, whatever that is, we can adjust that. That's when we're going to end exhalation. So, uh, sorry, that's when we're going to end inspiration and start exhalation. 
so what it does is it allows the patient to have much more control over the size of the breath they take. They can take a big sort of sigh type of breath and have a nice big, full, large volume breath, and then the next breath be quite a small one. So it allows for that sort of fluctuation and more natural um, variation in, in, in the way the breaths are sort of experienced by the patient because it's not sort of dictating how much volume you have to have. It's not dictating what pressure you have to go to or anything like that. It's allowing the patient to be quite spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. And the only adjunct to that is that instead of saying we're going to set a tidal, vo- a tidal volume of this or we're going to set a, a peak pressure of this, all we do is as the patient makes that inspiratory effort, we just give a little bit of pressure through the circuit. The ventilator will give a small amount of pressure which just helps them, it almost just like, and, and helps them make that tidal volume a little larger. It just sort of assists them in the way that, assist is the wrong word. It sort of just sort of helps them get that volume in. And we call that pressure support. And this is where the analogy comes in quite useful. So maybe I'll jump into that. If, if you imagine there's a sort of little puppy, a small dog, and it's walking, running along a field, and it comes across a big fallen down tree or a big log on the ground. And the puppy has to try and get over the log. And we're there watching as an observer. So when the puppy gets the log, what we could do is we could just pick up the puppy, lift him over the other side of the log and put him down again. Okay, so that would be that analogy would be like our control breath where the puppy really didn't have to do any of the work getting over the log. We just picked him up and put him on the other side. Okay, Mm -hmm. in an assisted breath. What the puppy would do is he would put his front paws up onto the log trying to get up and then we would just pick him up and put him over. So he makes that initial first effort and then we just grab him and lift him over and put him on the other side. So we we still did all the work basically, but the puppy made a little effort to get over the log. That would be an assisted breath. And in the third breath type, the spontaneous breath, it's, it's more sort of the puppy tries to get over the log and then we just kind of put your hand under his bum and sort of gradually help him over so he doesn't he does most of the work and you just kind of help him up as he goes up to the top and that's sort of helping that's what the pressure support does it, Excellent. yeah it's it, it's it's not we're not taking over the work of breathing we're not telling the patient how much volume or how much pressure they have to get we're just giving a little bit of help as they take a breath in yeah i like that analogy yeah. i've got i've got a picture of a labrador puppy climbing over a log now which which helps yeah, me so, an awful lot and so. that really helped me when i first got it because it really kind of made the distinction between what, what who is doing the work of breathing for each breath type yeah. so sure. then when we try and bring this back to modes now modes become much simpler because when i say they're in assist control mode of ventilation the only two breath types they can get are assisted breaths and controlled breaths Okay, so they cannot take spontaneous breaths in assist yeah. control ventilation. They can have the breaths which we decide they get every X number of seconds, and we're going to decide the tidal volume. We're going to decide the flow if we're in volume control. We're going to decide the FiO2, everything. Or they can get an assisted breath, which is exactly the same. They just decide when it happens. So there's not a lot of variation that can take place there. Whereas if they're in a mode which does allow spontaneous breath types, and that would be a mode like SIMV. The difference between that is they get their control breaths every 10 seconds, let's say. But in between those breaths, if they want to take an extra breath, they can get spontaneous breaths, which they can choose the volume more. They can choose the flow rate. If you, can, if you know which mode of ventilation you're in and whether or not it allows certain types of breaths, it makes understanding the modes far, far easier. 
What would happen, for example, if a patient was in a mode where they could take spontaneous breaths, but there were like SIMV, so there are some controlled breaths as well. What happens if they start to breathe too quickly? Does that when is that presumably is when you start to get asynchrony again? Is it asynchrony? Really, is a topic in itself. As people who devote their entire careers to researching ventilator asynchrony, basically, it it it, it is as you said. It's when there's there is there is a sort of breakdown in how coordinated the efforts of the ventilator are and the patient. So that would be our example. The classic example of asynchrony is is in that fixed control mode where the patient's trying to breathe out and the ventilator's trying to breathe in. That will create high pressures. They probably won't ventilate very well because the patient's pushing air out and the ventilator's pushing air in. Nothing really ends up going anywhere, but you generate lots of pressure. So that would be a bad situation. The patient would, wouldn't get ventilated in that sense. The alveolar ventilation would be very, very low in that context. And that's why asynchrony is bad. And so a lot of these modes have then tried to figure out ways to keep up the total amount of ventilation we're doing, keep up our minute ventilation whilst making the ventilation as synchronized as possible. So what SIMB did basically said, okay, this every six seconds thing is too rigid. Maybe a patient doesn't want to breathe every six seconds. And it can, it pitches a situation where you're, you, you give your breath and then you're going through your exhalation time and your total cycle time is, let's say, six seconds. And let's say we're at like five and a half seconds and the patient triggers a breath. What happens then? We haven't reached the six second point where our next breath is going to begin, but the patient's just triggered a breath. So that what would then happen is the, the patient would take a breath in themselves and then the ventilator would be like, oh, six seconds has gone by and deliver another breath right on top of that breath. And that's called breath stacking. So that was a bad thing. We, and again, you, you get a patient taking in a breath and, and then getting a double breath as the ventilator delivered the one which was just about to arrive, right? Um, so what SIMB did is said, okay, if it is every six seconds for our respiratory rate of 10, but if you, if you initiate a breath within a certain window of that six seconds, let's say you, you, you initiate a breath within 20% of that window, we'll just shift that scheduled breath across and let you have it early. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, so yeah, I can see that. Instead of, instead of you breathing, if you imagine a timeline from one second to six seconds of the start of one breath to the start of the next breath, and we're at about five and a half seconds, we're just about to get our second breath. But if the patient just decides to trigger a breath right there, they'll end up with a double breath, which is, can be damaging to the lungs. It's, it makes them uncomfortable. So what SIMB does is simply says, all right, well, we'll just shift over that breath you were just about to get and allow you to have it a little bit early to try and synchronize it more with what the patient's was doing. All right. And, and that was something that really wasn't wasn't possible in in the earlier modes in imv not simv you would have just got a double breath and it would have been quite uncomfortable a lot of these modes are moving towards trying to get a way to sync the patient and the ventilator together without sacrificing the amount of minute volume and, and the control we have over their over their sort of acid base and their blood gases and stuff and then in simv in between those breaths then you can take spontaneous breaths the final mode which we can use just as a comparison point is CPAP pressure support or like pressure support ventilation, sometimes called spontaneous ventilation. And, and in spontaneous ventilation, there is no preset breaths. There is no total cycle time because we don't give the patient mandatory breaths at all during the minute at all. So they are awake, breathing spontaneously, 
and they and they breathe at whatever rate they want to breathe at. We can set alarms and, and adjustments and stuff to sort of monitor how quickly or slowly they are breathing. But if they if the patient doesn't make any inspiratory efforts, the ventilator is not going to give them any breaths. They're gonna there's just gonna be a little flat line on their their sort of breathing curve. And and that allows the patient to be in complete control of their minute ventilation, complete control of their tidal volume, their respiratory rate, the rhythm of their breathing. So it's a very, very sort of, um, it's a much more comfortable way of breathing than being on a rate. But the downside of it is, is, well, what if your patient stops breathing? Then they're not going to get any breaths. In that context, we then have to set what we call an apnea time. And we set on the ventilator a certain amount of time, which basically says, if the patient doesn't take a breath, for a standard would be like 20 seconds, then we're going to go into apnea ventilation, which is essentially just a controlled mode of ventilation to keep them breathing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they just kind of flip back into a CMV, don't right. they, if you they, do that? They, they go into a, c- a controlled mode of breathing, and that will usually continue for as long as the patient remains apneic. And once, depending on the ventilator, once they've taken a few breaths themselves, if they wake up and then suddenly take two or three breaths, it will clip them back into into spontaneous ventilation. But that apnea is just there as a protection, a backup protection to make sure that they don't go complete, they don't just completely apneic if they if they fall asleep under narcotics or whatever. So you can start to see the range, how we've gone from spontaneous ventilation, where the patient does almost everything themselves. And then there's a controlled ventilation where the, the ventilator does basically everything and the patient does nothing. And then there's these modes which are sort of emerging in the middle, which are trying to blend blend the two. And really, okay. So, so to use your analogy, the the, the pressure support ventilation basically the puppy is just climbing over by itself, yeah. and we're giving absolutely no help whatsoever. Well, okay, that's it's good that you brought that back up. In spontaneous or pressure support ventilation, we do by definition give pressure support. So yeah. we allow them to breathe spontaneously, but we do apply a pressure support. So every log that that puppy gets to, we do help them up a little bit over it. And that that all that really is for is because let's say you had a completely healthy person, uh, normal lungs, normal re- respiratory control centers in the brain, everything was pretty good. They were just intubated for surgery, say. They're going to breathe along and they don't really... They don't really need any extra assistance to breathe from the ventilator. They can breathe on their own without a ventilator, so they can breathe with a ventilator. However, having an endotracheal tube down your throat, having the circuitry of the ventilator there, that all adds extra resistance to breathing. It's almost like if you imagine trying to breathe through a straw, it's it's not quite that extreme, but breathing through a small endotracheal tube can be quite hard. So we we give them a little bit of that pressure support just to overcome the added resistance of breathing through a ventilator circuit and breathing through an endotracheal tube. They're doing most of the breathing and we just add a little bit. So they'll have some peep. So the things will set in a spontaneous mode, we'll set their peep, we'll set a pressure support value, and then we'll set uh, oxygenation stuff. So we'll set what FiO2 they're getting and that kind of thing. And there's some other little things we can fix like flow and, and sorry, like slope and that kind of thing we talked about earlier. But for the most part, the patient's doing all the work. We're just giving a little bit of help each breath to overcome the resistance of the endotracheal tube. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Right. I think we're done with that then, are we? Yeah. And I, I I, I think this is the, that's the best way to tackle modes because then as you and I start going on talking about more complex modes, when I say like 
oh, this in this mode, you can get spontaneous breaths, you can get assisted breaths, and you can get controlled breaths. People will start to get an idea of, okay, I know what kind of mode we're getting into here. We're kind of in a mix between the the full control and full patient control. And it, just understanding breath types really, really helps when you get into learning about modes. Yeah, I think well, just while I, while I think about it, uh, one of the things I'm going to have to do um, is perhaps start making some um, handwritten notes as to what we covered in each podcast, because it would be nice occasionally if, you know, in future podcasts, when we do come up and start talking about controlled breaths, assisted breaths and spontaneous breaths, I can just quickly nip in there and say, if you go back to podcast number, blah, 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 right. you can have a quick review of that as well. I have just noticed something, actually, Ollie, on your YouTube page. Mm-hmm that on uh, uh, principles of mechanical ventilation four, mm-hmm. it's only a small point, but you've actually spelt principles wrong. Oh, <laughs> okay. You've got principalize. Oh, my uh, spelling has never been fantastic. As you look, go through the videos, you see me being like, hmm, how do I spell? No, I think, I think, it's, a, I think <laughs> it's a typo yeah. typo rather than a spelling well, mistake. You just that. stuck in an extra letter. The other thing I meant to ask you as well is, have you done anything on entidal CO2 uh, monitoring at all? I haven't, no. But it's that's, that along with um, developing some of the other modes of ventilation is on my sort of short list of things to do as time, as time sort of... Sure, because I think... I think end tidal is um, it's it's becoming very very commonplace yes. now. Where ten ten years ago it wasn't so commonplace. It, it really um, is. And it's, and I know uh, a lot of I know certainly a lot of the junior doctors and the medical students sometimes struggle to get their head around it. Right. And when you do explain it to them in a logical way, that the light goes on very quickly it does. for them. And, and it's it's really now it's it's becoming almost unacceptable to ventilate somebody without CO2. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. Really and, and you know now. We're talking about um, putting entidal on people when we're resuscitating them just to yeah. see if we've got any entidal. Right. So it is becoming more and more important. It's, we, we do that at, at the moment at our codes. We have portable entitled CO2 monitors, which we hook up to them, and we use it to track, to track obviously, like entracheal tube placement and then to track CPR efficiency and that type of thing. So we use it a lot all over the hospital. Um, even in the sort of recovery room, we'll put, we have nasal prongs, which um, have a little side port where you can measure people's uh co2 whilst they're spontaneously breathing on nasal prongs like it oh really yeah. oh that's interesting so it's it's cropping up everywhere and it's it's a it's a great topic so maybe i'll do a little series on them it's it's it's, it's almost as commonplace as the um the sats monitor yeah. now isn't yeah. it really? and it, and in yeah. many people argue that it should be it's it's a great tool if you know how to use it yeah um, absolutely the final point i'll make just to really try and clarify these three breath types is that we often people i'll I'll ask somebody like, what mode of ventilation is this guy on? And they'll say pressure control. And, but they don't realize that that, that doesn't tell me anything about the mode of ventilation. Does that make sense? All that tells yeah. me is that the breath delivery type is pressure control. Is that SIMV pressure control? Is that assist control pressure control? So, so the assisted, controlled, spontaneous, those breath type things don't really tell you anything about whether, how the breath is delivered. So in the very first video I did on ventilation, I, I said to kind of split it up into two questions, like what is the sort of control scheme in terms of how are the patient and the ventilator interacting, who's doing the work, how are they sharing the work? And then the second question is how are the breaths delivered? And they're two kind of separate things because you could have assist control ventilation, but that could be pressure control or volume control. The, the the assist control doesn't tell you anything about how the breaths are delivered and similarly saying volume control doesn't tell you anything about 
the sort of the algorithm and the relationship between the patient and the ventilator in terms of the work that's being done. So it's just a it's just a key concept to get your head around and try and separate those two out because they're often just used interchangeably and it it becomes easier to to, to discuss these things in 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 teams and rounds if people are kind of have got the right impression in terms of what each of the words mean and what the terminology means. Smack US Chicago, June 23rd to 26th, 2015, Nixon, Flower, Weingart, May, Rohit, Alimat, Levitan, Reed, Carly, Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015, Smack US, Chicago. Book it. Lovely. Thank you very much, Ollie. Interesting conversation. Lots of good points. I think that debunks some of the myths about mechanical ventilation. It's not that difficult. It's just understanding some of the principles. And it's like anything that I try and teach. If you can give a person a structure and a structured approach, it makes it easier to break down. It makes it easier to understand. And like I've always said, if you want to understand something, then just go off and teach it and make sure you teach it well. Because if you teach it well, you understand it well. So that's Ollie for you. Um, I'm yet to record some more episodes with Ollie. We're going to be doing it in the very near future. And there's lots of other issues to break down as well. Just to let you know, if you haven't been to my website very recently, I have started a series on mechanical ventilation, which you can find under the ventilation tab on the menu. Um, that combined some of the podcasts that we've done and then some extra posts that I've made and I've also started to add some videos to those as well. Now this is a work in progress as is everything on my website so bear with me if it looks a bit um, amateurish or there's a few teething problems I will get them sorted. Uh, This is a long-term project over many years hopefully so by the time I've got it right in 15 years when I'm retiring then it might look half decent but I hope you find it valuable. Um, It's good revision for me to be doing them anyway, and I'm learning an awful lot in the process. They are short posts. I didn't want them to be particularly long, long long-winded, because I don't know what you're like out there, but I don't tend to read long posts on people's websites. I perhaps only tend to read as far as I've got to scroll down once, and then I tend to move on, but maybe that's just my level of concentration. Anyway, the other things I wanted to talk about this week is my FOMED element is another fantastic post by one of my favourite clinicians out there, a gentleman called Dr. Scott Weingart. If you don't know Scott, he is a uh, emergency medicine and critical care physician over in America. He's got a wonderful site, uh, mcrypt.com. Um, I've got the links to it on the show note anyway, so you can always go in there and have a look. And he's just done a post on thyroid storm. Um, he's done a podcast on it and puts a few details on his website as well, just in the same way I have for my show notes. He also has show notes. And if you don't subscribe to Scott Weingart's podcasts, then you should, because they're brilliant. Um, he's very enthusiastic. He breaks things down in a very logical way. He doesn't talk way above my head, so hopefully um, we can all understand what he's saying. And he's very interesting to listen to. I'm hoping that I might actually meet him one day if I ever get to Smack, which brings me round to Smack. June, next month, not far away now. You've just heard the trailer for it that I've been running all this time. Um, You'll probably be sick of hearing that trailer by now, especially if, like me, you're not going. 
I really wish I was, but I'm not. Um, but uh, there's going to be lots of activity around Smack when it actually happens. If you are lucky enough to be going, then that's fabulous as well. And if there are any of you out there that are going and would like to come back and talk to me about it for a podcast episode, I'd be absolutely delighted um, because it would be nice to have somebody who's actually there. I do have a few Twitter friends out there that I know are going, um, but it'd be nice if uh, you would get back to me and just say, yeah, I'm happy to chat to you about it and perhaps make a few notes for me and talk about some of the highlights. That would be brilliant. The last and final thing I wanted to talk about was the third National Conference on Advanced Practice, which is happening in Coventry. Um, So those of you that aren't in the UK, probably this doesn't apply to you terribly much. But Coventry are holding this conference that they've had for the last two years. um, And there are some great speakers. It's very reasonably priced as well. Um, So I would suggest that coming along would be a good thing for you to do. I think it's only £40 um, to actually come to the conference. It's on Tuesday the 14th of July at the University of uh, University Hospitals Coven Warwick. And there's a good few sessions on there. I've just spoken to Charlotte Cairns, who's one of the organisers, um, and just said, um, isn't an agenda up yet? It's, it is formalised and she's sending sending it to me ASAP, but she has said that I can speak about some of the, um, some of the things that I have got planned. So it's going to be opened by Mark Radford, who is the chief nurse, nursing officer. Mark used to work at my trust, um, but has since moved on to Coven Warwick and he's been there for a few years now. And he's going to be talking about the West Midlands Advanced Clinical Practice Framework. Then we're going to have a gentleman called Dr. Chris Inman, who is a senior lecturer and program director uh, in advanced practice at BCU. And he's going to talk about an analysis of UK-wide advanced practice programmes. Vicky Williams is the gerontology matron, I presume, at University Hospital Coven Warwick, and she's going to be talking about advancing nursing and gerontology. So those of you out there that aren't critical care practitioners or emergency practitioners like myself, then we can see that, you know, um, advanced nursing practice isn't just happening where I live. It's happening in many, many different departments across the um, whole of the NHS. So that's something else that we can hear about. Then there's some fool talking about um, how a microphone, smartphone and a tweeting bird help me achieve autonomy, mastery and purpose in advanced practice. You may want to listen to him. He sounds a bit of a fool to me, but, you know, go along and and let's humour him, shall we? That's Jonathan Downham who's going to be talking about that for half an hour. Um, And then in the afternoon, uh, Charlotte tells me that in the surgical training centre, clinical skills workshops are going to be taking place. Uh, where they used a a new technique for teaching anatomy. So that'll be interesting. That's broken down into three separate sessions, depending on which part of the uh, anatomy you want to learn about. So I I haven't got much more detail than that. Um, I'm hoping Charlotte might be able to tell me a little bit more, but that as well sounds quite interesting. And then they're going to wind up the afternoon with some advanced practice development workshops, and we're going to be able to pick the brains of people who've done things like writing a publication, presenting a business case and undertaking research. Um, And then possibly we may well be talking to a lady called Judy Jenrick via a video link from Chicago on the perspective on advanced nursing practice um, from Chicago. So that would be uh, very, very interesting to hear as well. So I hope you'll come along. I think it's going to be a good day to not just learn all of these things, but hopefully to network with each other. If you do come along and you see me there, please come along and say hello. It'd be lovely to meet you and we can all exchange some ideas. Fantastic. Right, I'm done. Thanks for listening again. Podcast number 34. 
I've got another three or four in the pipeline already, so they'll be coming up in the future, trying to get them out every couple of weeks. If you want to go and visit my website, it's criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. And I haven't said this for a long time, but if you do find yourself in iTunes, I'd love it if you left me a review. Um, it just means that more people are likely to find my podcasts. Um, I do put a lot of work into these and it'd be lovely to get as big an audience as possible. Um, I've also, say this again because I haven't said this for a while, I do have a voicemail access on my website. I'd love to hear some of you through the voicemail. Leave me a message, ask me some questions, bring up any interesting points and I'd play them on the podcast and we can chat to each other that way. Um, it's very underused. I think I've only ever had three messages on there but it'd be nice to be able to um, hear your voices and perhaps start another conversation with you all as well. I hope you're all well. I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye.